Hey listeners, you're about to hear an episode that we originally recorded as a Patreon exclusive, but due to some scheduling issues requiring us to push our regular pairing back a week, we're releasing it into the main Next Picture Show feed today. Please excuse the occasional outdated reference as this was recorded a few weeks back. And if you like what you hear and aren't already a Patreon subscriber, please consider joining at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow, where you'll receive access to more subscriber-only content, as well as ad-free versions of our regular episodes. We'll be back next week with a regular show. Enjoy! Hello, uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, this is Scott Tobias. I'm here with the entire Next Picture Show gang, Keith, Tasha, and Genevieve. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello to you. When was the last time uh, we did a bonus with everybody? I guess maybe I know, the Oscars. Never, it never works out that way. It's usually just a couple of us. But, uh, but but we're here because we have a very important issue that we wanted to unpack today. Uh, we wanted to talk about the streaming landscape and specifically what the new films that are on some of the major services. The, the five, I think we have five, right? Hulu, Amazon Prime, Netflix, Apple Plus, and HBO Max. Because uh, we did go through this pandemic year, and, we, and we're, we're in the middle of the streaming war, and we're starting to get a sense of how these different services are operating, the types of films that they're making, the types of original films they're making, or even picking up and putting on the service uh, for people to, to watch. So we wanted to get just kind of opine about that particular landscape. I think the best place to start would just be, should we just go like service by service or or, or what? That works. Uh, you know, I just want to add to what you said at the top there that like we're we're limiting this to services that are you know, acting basically as film distributors, you know, we're, we're less concerned in this discussion with library titles and, mm-hmm. you know, your, your crackles and your, your criterions and, you know, your, right. uh, you know, your sort of landing spots for movies that w- have been released elsewhere. You know, these are services that this is a first release strategy. Right, right. And, and Paramount Plus is going to be part of that as well. I mean, we're, we're getting a film that Antoine Fuqua directed and uh, Mark Wahlberg's stars in that, that that kind of got shifted over to the Paramount Plus service. And so they're going to start ramping up uh, their original films as well. But, w- but for now, we have these uh, five. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to go uh, one by one. I think the, the, one, the best place to start would be the one producing the most of them <laughs> and <laughs> the one that's been doing it the longest, which is Netflix. Um, I was going through... Our, our friend Charles Bromesco's incredible vulture list, uh, where he ranked uh, from the years 2015 to, to 2020 all of the original Netflix movies, and original being things that that they produced, but also picked up from overseas. So there's a lot of those types of titles, or, or, or other festival fair. So it's not necessarily just them throwing money at a project. Project, in fact, most of the titles are pickups. But, um, but, but. All told, uh, that was 515 <laughs> films <laughs> in that time period, which is astounding. And of course, astounding that that uh, Charles saw all those films and ranked them like a like a complete maniac. Um, well, it so, was it uh, was a running list at some point. Like he was updating it month to month, and oh, yeah. I th- and I think sometime in the last few months, it was just like, okay, this this exercise can no longer sustain itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that is absolutely true. It was a it was an ongoing gig, and I mean, it it kind of fun. I mean, if you if you're on it, and useful, if you're on Netflix, uh, and you want to see if some movie you kind of find there is any good, I mean, you can turn to that list and 
and get get some sense or at least some sense of what Charles thinks of it. Um, anyway, uh, but I wanted to to get your impression of how do you see Netflix kind of functioning as a distributor and producer of original movies. I've got a mildly funny take on all of this, which is that I kind of feel like Netflix is doing the world a service by disproving the fantasy that the only thing holding filmmakers back from making the most creative, imaginative, out there uh, visions you could you could possibly think of is uh, those mean old studios who subject them to all kinds of committee group think and, and hold them back. Because Netflix's strategy with big name filmmakers has has more or less been throw money at the problem and give them as much freedom as possible because mm-hmm. they want to maintain relationships with them. And we've seen as a result, you know, I'm not saying that uh, these these filmmakers, I'm not saying that uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs or High Flying Bird or uh, Marriage Story or The Five Bloods, that any of these are like terrible movies or the worst movies that these people have ever produced. But... I'm also saying that they're not like head and shoulders above everything that they've ever made out of a studio system. So it's been, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of Netflix playing kind of like the, the amateur production studio that really just wants to be friends with uh, big name directors and shovels money at them to, to do with as they please. But I think it's also, it's always been tempting to say, you know, that the studio system just hurts filmmakers. Filmmakers are so much better than this. Well, now we can see what all of these filmmakers would do with complete freedom and a ton of money. <laughs> and the results are, are not really all that hugely different, I think. Uh, so it's, it's been, it's been basically kind of the imaginary AU of, uh, if you give Spike Lee a, a genie bottle, like what happens where a genie bottle is just a, a chunk of money. If a studio, I think they probably would have reined in Orson Welles' Other Side of the Wind, and it might have been a different film than, if he, than the film he made for, for Netflix. Oh, wait. No. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I hear he fought with them a lot I, about Final Cut. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, Tasha. I'll push back a little bit. I, I do think that a lot of the films you named are of, you know, are very much of the same level as a lot of the films that those films, the filmmakers made for, for studios. I, you know, I, I love the Irishman and the five bloods and, and, and Roma in particular, although that was developed independently of, of Netflix. So I, I do think, I think you are, there is a big gap between those sorts of films and then the, uh, what, uh, 515 500 <laughs> other films that appear on Netflix. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, it is too much to keep track of. They're does seem to be um, a few different formula that, that they fall into. Uh, like there's one, you know, so bird box, you couldn't look at anything. Right. And then, and then there's <laughs> one where people can't sleep coming out. There's, there's sort of like the, you know, stock apocalyptic uh, science fiction thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the rom-com, some of which are, are pretty enjoyable, some of which are, are not. Um, and then just, you know, Christmas like, movies. Christmas on, movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like Netflix is creating both like the, the original film and the, the ripoff film that comes after it. <laughs> like like, like they're, they're doing snakes on a plane and snakes on a train. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think there's metaphor. kind of this, there's a strata at work here. I think that between, um, as Tasha said, the filmmakers, maybe they want to have relationship with and, and, and filmmakers that will bring potential, prestige upon them your scorsese's and your and your you know quarons and your your uh, sandlers 
You're sa- <laughs> well, you're, you're, you know, yes, occasionally I mean, you're I mean, sailors. I, I, I've, I've been you're, sitting you're, here itching, itching to bring up the Netflix's Adam Sandler deal, you know, oh, which is huge, which is absolutely huge. Uh, and it, it's, it's so, and so they're they're spending a lot of money on on that, and then there's a lot of stuff that is really just filling the pipeline with through the algorithm. If I if I'm gonna be um, glass half full about the whole thing is that I think one thing that Netflix is doing that no one else is doing is carving out the potential for the mid-budget film made for adults. <laughs> you know, the thing that we all desperately want that there is no room for anymore. We're currently in a situation where studios just have their, those types of movies are just way too small for them to uh, make. And then, you know, independent films are independent films and, and uh, the budgets for those are not going to be all that significant. You kind of want that, kind of sweet spot where you're where you're making you know intelligent ambitious expressive films by you know interesting filmmakers at a decent budget level with good craftspeople and good performers and that sort of thing so i i I am hopeful you know that netflix will continue to do that and i kind of hope that others will raise the bar as well but i mean it's it's definitely a wild west with netflix because i you know i look at charles's list and like once you start getting into like the 30s and 40s (laughs) Out of 515, the movies, you know, start to become a, a lot less interesting. So there's, the hit to miss ratio overall is is quite bad. Scott, I'm going to name pick a number at random. I want you to read me what that film is about. Okay, three twenty seven. Three twenty seven. Love wedding repeat. Oh God, <laughs> I reviewed that one. It was really, really pretty and really, really bad. Yeah, it's got a, it's got it's got uh, Olivia Munn in it. Internet okay. uh, internet favorite Olivia Munn. So, so it's, it's interesting, but but I find that find that to be an interesting case, and also extremely different from some of the other you know streaming studios here we're, we're talking about. So maybe we should shift into to another one of those. Wait, I, um, I have I have a really good segue. Can I? Can okay, I? And, and we can bring up a specific filmmaker who has been making uh, moves in the streaming distribution space uh, for the past several years, and that is Steven Soderbergh, who mm-hmm. released a couple of notable films on Netflix: uh, *High Flying Bird* and *The Laundromat*. I think um, those are probably. Big differential in quality, but they they were both on Netflix uh, appropriately. Mm-hmm. But um, now he has sort of shifted to uh, HBO Max with uh, "Let Them All Talk," which I, I recently talked about on the main podcast, and uh, the upcoming "No Sudden Move," which is also set to be released on HBO Max uh, soon. Actually, um, yeah, yeah, so, it's like yeah July let's talk 1st, about HBO Max. <laughs> that's a great that's a great idea, and I think that's a typical of, of Soderbergh. Of some, he's always looking for. He's always the first to kind of find new avenues to to make movies mm-hmm. and distribute movies. I mean, he was there at the start of. I mean, Bubble was really a big part of the digital revolution. About he was one of the one of the first or the first day and day and date movies, um, and that just completely changed the game. I mean, and speaking of day and date, that is what HBO Max is doing right now with uh, their Warner Brothers uh, films, uh, which is an interesting case. Any thoughts on that? I mean, we did a whole podcast on it, you know, when when it was first announced. Sort of the state of things a few months in, though. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, exactly. I I don't know that it's working for them. I I feel like, well, I I guess The Conjuring did pretty well for them at the box office. 
And it felt like a movie people wrote about and talked about when it came out. But I'm thinking about Those Who Wish Me Dead, which I, I feels like, you know, did that come out or didn't it? I mean, I, I don't feel like there's been any conversation around it. It felt like a sort of like, that felt like a true, you know, maybe I'll just watch this at home kind of thing. And then people will probably find something else to watch instead. Like a true home box office? Yeah, yeah a true home <laughs> box office. Yeah, that's correct. Now, I would have been, I, I, th- I think it's actually quite a solid movie to watch at, at home. I, oh, I, yeah, I'm not, even, I'm not even speaking to its quality. I'm just saying Yeah, no, that, but I mean, know. like, uh, you know, it, it, it's a film that, that you know, certainly you're sitting, you know, in a theater, maybe you think it's not worth that much your money. But, you know, sitting around at home, it's a pretty diverting, you know, well-crafted thriller for the amount of time you spend with it but but i but i am curious about the the impact of the of these films that that is kind of a good point because it's like if if a film premieres on streaming does it does it make a sound kind of Mm -hmm. in a lot of these cases and i'm not really sure i mean i do wonder if this exact release pattern persisted for another 10 years if we would get over the mentality of anything that comes out on VOD is uh, is sort of second rate. I, I think that we're still operating under a an assumption that something that comes out on uh, streaming at the same time that it comes out in theaters, it, it feels like a direct-to-video release in a lot of ways. It feels like something that doesn't have the prestige of a, a theatrical window. And even though there are all the practical reasons for that in the world, it's still, it's still just a little tainted, you know? It's still part of all of these associations in our mind. Theaters, going to a theater is meant to be a little bit of an event and going to theaters with friends almost guarantees you're going to talk about that film a bunch afterwards. But sitting home alone on a couch, you watch a film and then maybe you nose around online to see if anybody uh, saw it at the same time as you and wants to talk about it in the same breath as you. But it just feels a lot less guaranteed in a way. And I just I see so little conversation about anything that isn't like Wonder Woman 1984 level of of anticipated, these films just kind of disappear and die in the exact same way a tiny Netflix release would. I mean, let's not overlook Judas and the Black Messiah, which was a, a major Oscar player, and I think definitely a, a point of of conversation. But but to your point, Tasha, like I think as we get into the summer months and like in the Heights and. God help us Space Jam and like these movies that were clearly conceived to draw a lot of people to theaters. I think maybe we're going to start, you know, feeling that divide you're talking about a little more strongly. And, you know, now that we can actually kind of safely go to to theaters again. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm, the other I'm, thing. I think I think Conjuring Three is kind of a test, you know, the first test case for this, where people were actually back in theaters. Uh, it seems like um, Quiet Place Part Two was kind of a watershed in terms of like, oh yeah, people will still go to theaters and see things. I, um, I have no opinion on that film. I haven't seen it yet, but I was so happy to see if people were turning out for it. Yeah, one thing I would say too that interests me about the HBO Max Warner Brothers experiment is is how. We're again seeing, of course, box office reports. You know, we're seeing numbers in a way that we weren't before in the pandemic. We could, we could, li- we could say, "Hey, you know, uh, we got the most page views ever for <laughs> for Mulan." It's like, okay, I guess, I guess, I just have to take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. But I, what, what, what interests me though is like, if there is a fall off, if you have people choosing to watch these Warner Brothers movies at home. And some in theaters, those theater numbers are the are the ones that people are going to see, and it, it it strikes me that that there, that we have a viewing public now that is very keyed into 
uh, box office reports and 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 you know if a movie is number one of the box office they might be more inclined to say wow what's this thing everybody's seeing and if the numbers coming in for Warner Brothers films are going to be a little bit less than they would have been if if they were not also available on HBO Max I'm curious if that is going to start you know affecting uh, Warner Brothers decision to continue uh, with this model. I don't know if I buy the argument that the average moviegoer is more attuned to to box office numbers than they used to be. I think, you know, certainly circles we run in, perhaps, you know, but, um, you know, I think for, again, the quote unquote average moviegoer, you know, just sort of the statistical mean, something like, you know, Netflix's top 10 most popular is perhaps just as meaningful a rubric of whether something is worth seeing, you know. I, I will also note that there were box office numbers during the pandemic box office. Uh, because I did a piece that ended up getting revised uh, to, into something slightly different. But I, as an example, you, even if you weren't paying attention, uh, the number one movie, October 9th, 2020, was The War with Grandpa, which stayed in the top 10 of the box office for 20 weeks and is still playing in 25 theaters as we record this. Uh, a run from October through June uh, for a total of twenty, almost twenty-two million dollars in domestic box office. Is it um, is it available to stream anywhere? It is. You can you can you can rent it on VOD as as okay. I did for this piece, and then end up cutting the parts about the war with Grandpa. So I watched the war with Grandpa in vain. But I can tell you, uh, we could record a whole bonus episode about that movie sometime. Yeah, I remember getting a random email at one point uh, during the pandemic that was basically, uh, do you want to cover our film? It's the number one film in the nation. And it had made something like $25,000 at the at theaters, but it was a horror film and it was the only new release that week. So, yeah. so that's that's the one that made made the money in all five of the theaters that were open. Uh, and I don't know, it, it seemed opportunistic, but also just like hilarious. It will be interesting to see, though, you know, I, I think you can look at the Warner Brothers HBO Max thing and also Zack Snyder's, you know, cut a longer cut of Justice League as efforts to drive new subscribers to HBO Max, you know, mm-hmm. which is a short-term goal, right? It's not a long-term strategy necessarily to be doing that. Um, but say that short-term strategy disappears, what is going to be left? I mean, I guess we talked about the Soderbergh film being on there. Uh, An American Pickle was on there as well, which we which we had a Patreon uh, a bonus episode about, I believe. Um, but you know, who, who know who knows? I mean, because you know, there, what, the problem with any of these streaming services is that once you do have the a subscriber base uh they're going to keep expecting you to populate that service with with new films uh which cost a lot of money to make see i don't i don't know how much that's true and how much they're banking on the uh the gym mentality where you you pay upfront money and then you kind of forget that it's there I don't think it's like a one-time, hey, you signed up for uh, Wonder Woman 1984, and now you're going to uh, unthinkingly and unquestioningly pay us however much a a month for the rest of time. But a lot of those kind of short-term subscription drive movies, like the feeling that, well, you'll sign up this month for uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, or you'll sign up next month for for whatever it is – 
the mentality is kind of, well, you're probably going to leave it for a little while. And like, who knows, maybe you'll discover uh, the other stuff that we have here. Netflix certainly throws an incredible amount of content at its wall, hoping that something will stick and hoping that people will be lured just by variety and constant change. But I, I question in the same sort of way how long they're going to stick to the idea of like throwing a lot of money at at big main name filmmakers or how long they're going to like be interested in chasing Oscars. Cause I don't know whether those uh, rubrics have been lucrative for them at all. Uh, Genevieve was saying that the top 10 gives you a, an idea of what's worth watching. But if you look at the top 10, it's pretty routinely colonized by some random movie Probably because somebody on Reddit somewhere uh, pointed out that there's like a nude scene in it somewhere. And, you know, 2000 people watched two minutes of it as a result. Or it'll be colonized by something like uh, the DreamWorks animated movie Home, which is just like a perennial favorite because it's a family film. And if a, a certain number of people watch it and it pops up on the list, then a lot more people click on it because it's there and it's bright and it's uh, it's easy for kids. So if the thing that's most watched on Netflix on any given day is a 10-year-old animated film or TV show that they didn't pay a whole lot of extra money for. Is there going to be an ongoing reason to pay Martin Scorsese a whole bunch of money and then have to give it a theatrical release and have to go through all of the marketing and all of that when they could just, you know, look to see what other uh, what other countries have produced animated films that they could maybe get for super cheap? I think with... HBO in particular, and also a, another service which we we didn't include here, and, and maybe we should have, but it's also a little outlier, a bit of an outlier, which is Disney Plus. Um, oh right, you know, um, I think in both of those cases, there's a bit more stock placed in the library than there is uh, with Netflix, which has you know kind of notoriously just had a real whatever attitude toward its film library uh, titles in in particular. Mm-hmm. But HBO, you know, as that ho- home box office and you know as a linear channel that was known for, for playing movies, at this point, still you know seems to have a fair amount of investment in populating its services with older movies that are good, you know, and people people may, may want to revisit. And that's, you know, the case with Disney as well. You know, I think in terms of, you know, new film distribution, they've, and correct me if I'm wrong, they've stuck with just the early theatrical release model. Like they haven't, there hasn't been any Disney plus specific film releases, right? It's been well, all Luke, TV. Luca will be. That's not that's getting the theatrical. Too. No, it's 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 not really? actually. Yeah, it's it's kind of bizarre, frankly. It's oh, a, it's, wow. a, it's a Pixar film, and it's not getting a theatrical release at all. Soul didn't get. I don't know that Soul got any theatrical oh, release the, either. Yeah, the, uh, there there are some live action films that like Fiona uh, and Ulysses and. That thing, the thing that Tom McCarthy directed, that that uh, I can't remember the name of. Yeah, lots of lots had of bear, docs had too. Had actually, a, had a bear in it. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. a doc about about it had a bear uh, in it. <laughs> Howard. Howard. It did have a bear in it. It's like a friendship between a boy. I watch these things for the times. Um, 
Uh, and, and Howard, the film about Howard Ashman is on there as well, a documentary. Uh, so they're doing some they're doing some stuff. We probably sh- should have included them. I don't know how it slipped my my mind, but um, because they have a very interesting model too for for that that whole premium access model for things that are in theaters as well. And again, it's a service that it, you know has placed a lot of stock in its library because the the Disney sure. library is that's a killer. Yeah, I- I- exactly. And you know HBO uh, as as well. I think maybe less so with uh, these other services we're talking about that sort of cycle things in and out a a, a lot more liberally. Also, and I don't want to muddy up this discussion more than I already have, so I'll just like kind of give this a flyby point as far as the discussion about retention, is Mm -hmm. all of these services also have original TV shows, and Mm -hmm. a lot of them continue for multiple seasons, and a lot of them have large back catalogs that that people may want to watch. So, you know, that's definitely another factor here. It's not necessarily for the purposes of this discussion, but it definitely is something to keep in mind as far as, you know, subscriber behavior. And that's a massive thing for Netflix. I mean, I think you're, I mean, you can't, I guess you, yeah, we're, we are talking about the movies here, but, but a motivator to keep people watching. I mean, if you have those catalogs, as you say, if you have, if you're HBO and you're, you're, you're Disney, um, you've got an incredibly rich library that's not, that people could, I mean, you know, I mean, HBO, what a, that nobody, nobody had a better, nobody's had a better run than that. You can just watch Sopranos or something all day. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, although, you know, Disney obviously is just loaded with stuff that, that kids can dig into at any time. Um, and, and so the, the Simpsons. pressure, and <laughs> the Simpsons, I mean, it's, all it's of crazy. The Simpsons it's, I know. How, do, how, how can we take it for granted? It's incredible. And, and the thing is, Netflix ha- is almost like a, is like a network with no, History. It's like a pure internet sieve in the way that uh, websites tend to be. In a way, it's just like you, you you constantly have to populate it because nothing is going to really stay. It's all just going to kind of just you know it, you have to just keep recycling it because you you don't you don't ho- have those rich catalogs and, mm-hmm. and you're not putting uh, giving people people don't feel like they can kind of go back and watch a lot of things that are already there that are going to be all that gratifying. So you're just going to have to kind of keep hitting them with new stuff. Um, and uh, that's, so the models are a little different. Um, but I kind of wanted to shift to another, to a counter example to these uh, ones we're talking about, because it, you know, we're talking about throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. Uh, the opposite of that is doing what Apple Plus is doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is Apple Plus is a, a hugely curated approach uh their films they've made films like uh greyhound with tom hanks uh the banker which was quite controversial but uh they 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 had that they had the sofia coppola film on the rocks they had wolf walkers which we really loved uh you know documentary wise they they spent a great deal of money on boy state i think with the expectation that it was going to be released theatrically as well but that that landed on there the beastie boy story so you know, and they've got some um, pr- pretty interesting things coming up. That's a much different approach, and it's the same approach they take with television. They don't have a massive catalog of stuff that, that you can draw on when if you're a subscriber. But there does seem to be a lot more TLC when it comes to choosing what projects to to do or which projects to pick up. That said, though, I have started to when when Apple TV Plus picks up a project, I start to feel like it's being held hostage a little because (laughs) that service, I mean, it only really has a few million subscribers. And 
They've said yeah. from time to time, you know, uh, picking up this or that was uh, very profitable for us. And, you know, we're, we're growing at the rate that we expected to grow and we're very happy with it. But if uh, a, a film or, or show gets picked up there, you kind of know it's going to disappear. You know, you, you know that it's going into a silo where a relatively few uh, percentage of, of film fans are going to have access to it or going to see it. And with a film like Boys State that I, I absolutely loved and heavily advocated for. I just I hate to see that because I know there's not going to be a big broad conversation about it. I, I'm glad that somebody picked it up, somebody that that cared about it and wanted to support it. I'm glad Wolfarkers has a place to live, but I'd rather it be a place to live where people can see it, especially where casual viewers can see it, because I don't think mm-hmm. there are Apple TV Plus casual drive by uh, viewers the way there are Netflix casual drive five viewers. And the chance that somebody would have found Wolf Walkers on Netflix while they were idly surfing for something for their kids and then gone on to discover the, the library of cartoon saloon films seems just so much higher than somebody coming across it on Apple TV+. And Cartoon Saloon was mostly on Netflix before. Is that yeah. still the it's case? Not, I know, I know it's mostly see- disappeared from yeah. it. Oh really? We we actually watched. We did watch. I think a few months ago, "Song of the Sea." Uh, Last together as a I family, checked, so it was on it there for. Left, but I think but Netflix being what it is. Okay, but they, they've had story. They've had they had Secret of Kells on there before too. But yeah, I think they're both they're both gone now. And it may it may be because of Wolfwalkers. Like I I I never know how much stock to place in sort of the deal making that might be done as far as related titles go. Um, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, with streaming services, but, you know, especially with something again, to go back to HBO max and like how all the DC movies are are on there now, you know, and obviously on Disney, you have all the, the Marvel movies, you know, so it does feel like increasingly, you know, making entertainment increasingly like siloed into types, you know, that get associated slash relegated <laughs> to a specific service. Yeah, for what it's worth, you can rent the Cartoon Saloon movies, but they're not streaming anywhere except Secret of Kells is streaming on Hoopla and Canopy, uh, which not everyone has access to. Well, and that's <sighs> the other thing about Apple, to to go back to the whole library thing, is Apple is, you know, it's a technology company first. You know, it's not an entertainment company. And, you know, I mean, Disney is obviously a huge monolith, and it's more than just a, an entertainment, uh, you know, company, but that's... It, where its roots are and and Netflix as well. Um, you know, but but Apple is 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 a tech company and this is sort of a, a new product of theirs. And as far as library titles go, they don't really seem interested in, you know, populating something for subscribers, but they will give you a platform where you can rent pretty much every anything you you want mm-hmm. to rent. You know, I mean mm-hmm. Apple more than I think any of these feels like a platform that happens to have made some some good acquisitions, but is not necessarily interested in creating an identity for itself as a entertainment or, or media company. It's also, I mean, this is a side issue, but I find their their app kind of hard to navigate too. Hard yeah. to you know, they don't do a great job of pointing you toward what you. Even what you've just been watching, I've, I've been enjoying Mystic Quest, but I had to like go Mythic actively. Quest. Se- yeah. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> Mythic Quest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I had to actively seek out where the show is on the page every mm-hmm. time I use it. Yeah, too. yeah, that is strange. I, I, I the, the one thing I will say to Apple Plus's credit is I, I do feel like there's some thoughtfulness behind the things that they do pick up and the things they do produce. Uh, yeah, we, we we're not talking about TV here, but but 
you know, they have a, I think a pretty oh, yeah. strong TV slate, you know, it, it very consistent in, in a way that almost reminds me of vintage HBO, like HBO Max is HBO, HBO Max is now a completely different animal, but Apple Plus has kind of reminded me of like old HBO where it's like, okay, we're just, we're not going to do a lot of stuff, but the stuff we do uh, is going to be thought through. And mm-hmm. so um, this is a pretty good list of titles and a, a, a diverse list and it se- at least seems semi prestigious to be on there but but uh it killed me specifically as tasha said to see boy state siloed off there last year because that film should have been that film i've never been i've never experienced a reaction to a documentary in a theater like the one i experienced for that film it was incredible and then and i think i think in an election year that that thing would have been talked about constantly if it were released any kind of conventional way um, but I wanted to just, to, we've been on this for quite a while, so I don't necessarily want to do the other two separately. I think we can pro- probably combine them <laughs> and, and give, give your th- to, and see if you have any additional thoughts on these. This is, uh, the, the two being Hulu and Amazon Prime. Any, anyone, any thoughts on Hulu or Amazon Prime? I just look at this list of Amazon, and again, this may be an interface issue or Keith doesn't have enough time issue, but it's, it's full. This list is full of movies that are like, oh yeah, I should get around to that. I mean, and, and, uh, you know, you know, Sylvie's love, which shouldn't be bad. I forgot about that. Uh, time. I still haven't got to that's, that's, that's Time's on terrific, me. Terrific, yeah. That, that's terrific. on me. But like, but like a movie like Sila and the Spades, which kind of comes and, you know, I don't remember it popping up there. I, I, I think I only read about it because I was reading reviews of it and, and, and uh, you know, it kind of goes away. Uh, Vast of Night is a movie I've championed a lot, but I don't know that, you know, that's something that's, that's on a lot of people's minds. I, um, but, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I, they, there's a lot of good stuff on, on, on Amazon. Um, I feel like at least with Hulu, you, you get more of a spotlight if, if you are the movie. And they put out fewer movies mm-hmm. uh, as well. Um, so I think they, you get a little more muscle behind, like a Palm Spring or Plan B, which I, I'm planning to watch uh, soon, too, because I've, I've heard nothing but great things about that one. Yeah, yeah I'm excited for that, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree that, like, looking at these titles, I, I gravitate more to to what's on Hulu. Um, but also, Hulu is a service that, and I mean, maybe this is just a, but you know, because of my, my, my job, but I, I do tend to think of Hulu as a TV mm-hmm. uh, place first. You, you, you know, like part of that is because they do have like a live TV component, you know, and like Hulu is the service for cord cutters. Like if you don't want cable, but you still want to be able to, you know, kind of keep up with sort of the breadth of of modern TV and not just streaming television like Hulu that's what Hulu is for that's my that's my that's what I do I that, I am the cord cutter who does that <laughs> I, yeah. I have Hulu live <laughs> yeah so the the movies that pop up there the the original movies that pop up there they I, I think Hulu and Amazon they still kind of like share a, a library a lot of library titles I I don't remember the specifics yeah, of the deal there but like mm-hmm. yeah but like you know the what's coming and going from Hulu Hulu and Amazon lists, they always have a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. Not on new films, though. Those are no, se- those right, are right. So, you know, it, but it, the, the you know, development of new films distributed specifically on Hulu, like, I can't even really think of much before Palm Springs that stuck out. Yeah. I don't think they really ventured into the, the original film. It, feel, it feels like almost like a pandemic-specific development for yeah, them. Yeah, no, it's it was. I mean, Palm Springs, I think, was a pretty big 
step for them because uh, uh, that that was a I think that was a pickup too. Or did they... it was a Sundance acquisition? Right. So so um, and I think they're kind of looking to um, take smaller swings too. There. I mean, uh, Palm Palm Springs is still you know a pretty independent film, and the other films that are on the service are are all of a pretty small independent size. Um, Amazon is different because they will occasionally you know do something big they, they'll do this the the borat sequel they'll do the coming to america sequel they've got the without remorse you know the tom clancy thing which i'm sure cost uh, money <laughs> and they, they they did one night in miami which is not necessarily expensive but but uh, uh certainly pr- prestige um so uh it's a little bit different i think they're a little bit more comparable to, to what Netflix is doing. And, and what I listed when I, I was kind of preparing for this, making kind of a list of titles from, from each, um, I, I was not even trying to write down everything that Amazon had because they, they have so many titles that they, original titles that they put out that I never even heard of right. uh, that I think are directed toward specific markets. Yeah, they do a lot of issue docs. Again, as, as, as does Netflix, you know, mm-hmm. but there's a, a definite segment of moviegoers that just, I think, really gravitate toward that very sort of didactic, you know, article translated to film type of documentary. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of those on Amazon as well as Netflix. Our friend uh, Noel Murray recently wrote a piece for us at uh, Polygon for a project we called Masterpieces of Streaming that was uh, taking stock of the the streaming world right now. Um, And I I specifically went to him because he watches so many documentaries and he loves docs so much. Uh, I had him write a piece about kind of the the state of documentaries due to streaming. And one of his big takeaways that I think feeds directly into that is he thinks that people have uh, kind of replaced the the 60 minutes variety of show that every news mm. network used to have the reporting on events of the day tv model with a model that does that with documentaries instead mm. and so these these instant turnaround streaming documentaries i mean there's there is already a documentary about the uh, the the stonks business with uh, gamestop yeah. uh, or it, the, the the dual firefest docs from a a, a year or so ago yeah, you hulu, know hulu and netflix right yeah, so I mean, people are turning around to documentaries faster and faster, and mm-hmm. it's starting to feel more and more like you know TV, long form TV investigative news, uh, essentially. And I don't think that's fundamentally a bad thing or a good thing. It just it is a thing, but it does mean that all of these uh, streaming services have to contend with whether they want to be in charge of content that that basically is for the moment. Like as much as a Netflix series like Shadow and Bone might be a big phenomenon for two weeks and then people just immediately stop talking about it, the the value of a GameStop stocks uh, kerfuffle documentary is is pretty short lived. You know, it's it's pretty intense and of the moment. But are people five years from now going to be like looking for a documentary explaining that all to them? Particularly a doc, and and this again is really Noel's take that I'm parroting. Particularly a doc that was made so closely after the events that it has no perspective, it has mm-hmm. no context, it has no 
long term, how did this come out? It it literally was made a month after the events and can only have that perspective. Well, it's 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 Alex Gibney's world and uh we're all living <laughs> in it. <laughs> what, what's uh, what's kind of a and we can move on after this, but like what's kind of a bummer about that to me and I'm sure to to Scott as as well is that you know it's it's harder to distinguish the truly interesting form breaking daring documentaries when they they do pop up like uh, your your Dick Johnson is dead on on Netflix for example you know like that's going to show up in the documentary row alongside mm-hmm five of these sort of quick turnaround issue documentaries. And if you're not someone who's reading reviews or listening to the Next Picture Show podcast, you you might not have the context to differentiate between them. But why wouldn't you be doing those things? That's what we're here for. (laughs) You know, know, I mean, there's always going to be a vast you know, wilderness of entertainment options. And uh, that's what you turn to us for. Otherwise, we would be not employed <laughs> or, le- or, or less employed than we already are. <laughs> uh, all that said, I, th- I feel like my big takeaway about the streaming landscape at the moment is we're leaving the Wild West era. We were we were in an era where everybody's sort of attitude was, we don't know how we're going to make money here. We don't know what the the best rubric is going to be. Is the best rubric corner the the biggest name filmmakers and throw a ton of money at them? Is it license things from other people that already exist? Is it pick up TV shows that people loved that died and remake them or reboot them or continue them? Uh, is it is it license classic movies and try to corner the market on that? Is it pick up everything that sounds remotely good at a film festival and uh, try to try to ride the wave of attention that those films get? All of these different models. And then you turn around and look at something like Disney Plus and HBO Max, where the model might be hang on to a film and don't let other streaming services or general rental have it and create your own exclusivity windows. I feel like an awful lot of this is eventually just going to go by the wayside as streaming services realize, well, you know, maybe it's not worth throwing millions and millions of dollars at at Martin Scorsese if you're going to have to put up with like Martin Scorsese level demands. Maybe we're just as well off with uh, like licensing a bunch of a bunch of cheapy movies if all our our viewers want is constant churn. I, I feel like a lot of these models are going to change, but what we're definitely going to be left with is what Disney Plus has discovered, which is we can make people pay to see the movie in theaters. Then we can make people pay uh, extra amounts of money to watch it solely on our service, which they also have to pay for. Then eventually we can make it seem like a deal that they don't have to pay extra, but they still have to subscribe to the service. And then after all that money and attention and subscribers are gathered, then we can release it out to the general populace. I think of all of the experiments that we've been seeing, that's the model we're most likely to end up stuck with, is all of these studios that have their own streaming service, realizing that these exclusivity windows and, you know, bonus payment options uh, are profitable for them. I do wonder, though, I think you're right, Tasha, but I do wonder, can all the streaming services be sustained uh, five years from now? 
you know, are, are we still going to have this many streaming services? Uh, if the point of cutting the cord was to, to lower costs and simplify things, yeah. <laughs> suddenly you have all these subscriptions and you have to go from app to app to app to figure out where things are. I'm paying for all of them and cable. What is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. Hundreds of dollars a month. Do you, the, do, you have, do you have a time all of them and, you and, haven't yeah. told us about? I have YouTube. Uh, I, I, instead of Hulu, I have YouTube Live, which, which is pretty good. But I write all of my taxes. So yeah, you, I need as, to do as, that. As I, yeah, yeah, you got to do you got to do that. So <laughs> That's a, it's, it's, Keith, Keith, Keith has YouTube TVs because it, it, it can give him all the all the QAnon uh, content that <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. comes directly to him. <laughs> um, a whole channel yeah. dedicated to it. So so we'll, we'll we will monitor this situation as it develops because I think this conversation is going to be fascinating to listen to one year, three years, five years from now uh, because I'm sure Unlike the landscape will change. <laughs> Yeah, will change pretty dramatically. But uh, but I think you have our thoughts for now. Thank you again so much for listening and for supporting us. And uh, we'll be back uh, again with something soon, right? Yeah. Gang? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Only as long as we keep paying for it. Okay. Super new extra premium Patreon uh, subscription yeah. <laughs> for a, a limited availability yes. window. We, right. We got it. We really need to figure out some premier access model. We'll work on that. Uh, until then, we'll we'll uh, we'll see you next time or something like that. All right. <laughs>